Today is Monday within the octave of Corpus Christi. Vatican II declared that the Eucharist is the source and summit of our faith. And shortly thereafter, in the name of Vatican II, that source and summit was dismantled and destroyed. Today on Catechism Crisis, Part 2. Jesus is King. Welcome to the 1 Peter 5 podcast. I'm Timothy Flanders, Editor-in-Chief of 1 Peter 5. This is the Catechism Crisis series with co-hosts and catechetical experts, Aaron Sang of Tradivox.com and Matthew Pleasy of CatechismClass.com. And special guests tonight, Avoiding Babylon, Rob and Anthony. Rob and Anthony, so glad to have you all on the show today. Yeah, thanks, Tim. Thank you for having us, Tim. I can't believe you're still awake, Tim. I know your sleeping schedule, and I know you must be tired. Yeah, we're recording this late at night on uh, the Feast of Corpus Christi, but uh, we're, we're trying to celebrate the entire octave at, at 1 Peter 5 as a part of our sodalities, uh, the things that come together this month in the, the month of the Sacred Heart, and it's really the, the sacred and Eucharistic heart of our Lord that is celebrated this month in June as the, the Feast of the Sacred Heart is uh, the octave leads up to the Sacred Heart. And in our lay sodality of Eucharistic reparation, we are trying to make reparation for all the crimes against the Eucharist and truly revitalize faith in the Blessed Sacrament. So um, if you want to join us in that lay sodality and that effort, you can go to 1peter5.com slash crusade. This was founded and called for by His Excellency Bishop Athanasius Snyder. And we also have our fasting sodality. So we're doing the Apostle Fast this month. We talked about that with Matthew Pleasy uh, just a couple weeks ago. So but before we get into our topic, uh, Rob and Anthony, what's new with uh, Avoiding Babylon? You want to take it, Rob? <laughs> well, well, first off, Anthony was on uh, Timothy Gordon's channel today to present... Um, are but but mostly his thesis on on uh on what we're seeing uh especially during this month um you know how what we're seeing is really the creation of of a new or or really a resurrection of of an old religion back from from before Christianity so he did that today but you know lately we've also had uh Patrick Coffin on um who else have we on, had on recently? Uh, We've had Father Dave Nix. Father on. Dave we Nix, had, yeah. Yeah, we had some great interviews. So we had, um, uh, who else do we have, Rob? We, we had, had oh, Joshua Charles. Joshua, Joshua Charles. Charles is a, and a, if anybody is ever really interested in doing a deep dive into the fathers, Joshua Charles came on and really gave us an amazing presentation. So if that, if you guys want to check something awesome out, that would be the one that I would, I would suggest. Sweet. Awesome. Thanks, yeah. guys. Yeah. So check the link below. You can go subscribe to Avoiding Babylon. Just a wonderful YouTube channel. You're missing out on your Catholic YouTube life if you're on YouTube and you're missing Avoiding Babylon. So make sure to check them out. <clears throat> Meanwhile, I just I was very happy to uh, get a my next Tradivox volume in the mail, Aaron. It's uh, <clears throat> volume... Volume 12, the second, I think it's Gone Part 2, right? Aaron, this is the um, 
The Catechism of Perseverance, Volume 3. Volume 3. So tell, tell us about the latest edition from uh, Tridevox, Aaron. Oh, boy. Well, I think we mentioned Gaum in the last episode of the, of the Crisis series here. But he's, he's the only multi-volume catechism that we pulled in for the Tridevox series. So he's a four, it's a four-volume catechism. It's probably the most outstanding, at least, at least the most well-known of the multi-volume catechisms of yesteryear so we had to go with him uh so much so that when we when we first launched the project it was 2019 and we had somebody write in like the next day and said are you gonna have gowns catechism of perseverance in there i said who are you you you're, you know one of the, one of the <laughs> 10 people in this continent that even know about catechism. so but um yeah it's it's stellar so volume three is is good i um volume four of his four volume catechism is my favorite and that'll be the next so you got to wait another fiscal quarter for that one. Well, so what's <laughs> well, you got to give us a preview. What's I mean, this this looks awesome. This because this catechism is a historical catechism. It's just a the church history written as a catechism. So what's volume four then? Well, four is kind of a, a liturgical take. Really, it's it's the truths of the faith through the lens of the the rites of the church. There've been a few like that in history, but his is just copiously detailed. Wow. Yeah. Well, that that is very apropos, obviously, to our liturgical controversy. Um, so let's talk about the dogma of the real presence. Um, as I said, this is it, I think Vatican II scored some points in my book when it used the term source and summit, which is a little poetic for scholastics out there might not like the poetic nature of that. But I think it really starts to capture the great mystery and the immensity of this dogma. Um, but the <clears throat> what happened after that great poetic achievement was a disaster, uh, lamentably. And uh, Rob and Anthony, you guys just covered some of the latest news, which illustrates why this is so important. Um, so, Rob, can you tell us a little bit about some of the latest news on this? So... Um, I would imagine most people watching this probably have heard at least a little bit, but um, in the, I want to say it was the Archdiocese of Kansas City, um, it, it it has been found by a couple of, of new priests that had just been moved into their parishes. It sounds like a situation where one priest had two parishes and another priest just had one. They moved into their parishes um, and found that the wine that had been used for the consecrations previous to them coming to the parishes uh, was invalid matter for the consecrations, whether it had um, an additive like extra sugar to make it more sweet or whether it had some sort of other fruit juice, um, you know, besides one, besides, um, you know, fruit of fruit of the grape or fruit, fruit of the vine, something was it was in this wine that made it invalid matter. And therefore every single mass that had been, um, celebrated using this this wine was invalid going back to whenever this that wine had begun to be, be used so potentially years and years of masses were made invalid not just illicit but completely invalid by this invalid matter so truly a tragic situation and unfortunately these stories are just coming out uh every few months and even in the 60s 70s 60s 70s and 80s uh immense harm was drawn to the the validity and just the sacrilege and all sorts of uh scandal to the faith 
Um, now, Anthony, tell us about um, you had mentioned something about how you were catechized <clears throat> growing up. Can you tell us a little, little bit about what what was the um, what was the landscape like when you were growing up outside uh, outside your family? What was dealing what we were dealing with liturgically? And then tell us about how did how did your parents instill in you this this dogma? My upbringing. So my parents went to Medjugorje in the 90s and my father had come home and had a deep conversion. My parents were part of the, the charismatic renewal. So a lot of my upbringing was on feelings based things, going to um, different retreats and things like that. Now, I remember being at a retreat at I went to I think it was at Scranton University that we went to a retreat and everybody around me was having this encounter with the Holy spirit. I'm watching people around me weep. And it, it was a very strange thing for me because I remember begging God, please come into my heart too. And I didn't have an emotional experience at this retreat. So it, it was kind of a disconnect for me to see all these people going through all that and having this experience. And I didn't have one of my own, but the one thing my parents did do as I was growing up, my mother always showed me Eucharistic miracles. Like the, she really showed me how Christ is truly present in the Eucharist by showing me that there were bleeding hosts and that when they tested the DNA on them, like she really showed me a few documentaries growing up that that foundation stuck with me. And even though I left my faith in my, I would say late teens, early twenties, I left my faith. When I came back, I came back through Protestantism it was a Protestant preacher who brought me back to my faith. But when I started hearing anti-Catholic things in those sermons, I remember back to my upbringing of seeing those documentaries on the Eucharist and saying, okay, there's something off here. I definitely know that the Eucharist is the true presence of Jesus. And I need to try to square that. And that's what led me on my search to actually like investigate the claims of Catholicism and which eventually led to my deep conversion and then eventually I wound up uh, at the traditional Latin mass several years later. So did you, so are you saying that you never really seriously doubted the real presence, even though you kind of were a wayward Catholic for a while? So even when I left the, so I, I can, I will, I was never an atheist, even at my time away from the sacraments, I always believed in God. So it's like when you're away from the sacraments, though, you live as though there is no God, even if you believe there is one. And I think I, I'm sure a lot of people identify with that, right? Like you grow up, you're given this foundation, but then 100%. you want to go, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, you go and want to do your own thing. But there was something about knowing that Jesus was truly present in the Eucharist and my parents showing me all these, my parents showed me, uh, they showed me incorruptible saints and things like that. Mm -hmm. And it was, it was those things that actually kept me grounded and saying, okay, well, it has to be, if it's even in the times of my highest doubt, it was like, okay, well, if, it, if there is a God, it has to be Catholicism because we're the church of miracles. We really are. We have the greatest miracles of any faith out there. And you can't, you can't doubt that. So I definitely never was an atheist. And I always knew that it was the Catholic faith that I had to come back to. That, that's a really great, uh, that's a great hope for Catholic parents in our day, you know, just show the kids the miracles. It, yeah. it's, 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 it's kind of simple almost because God speaks, God himself is the one catechizing the children right there, like directly sort of thing. Uh, Matthew, you have uh, worked as a catechist for many years. Mm -hmm. And I don't know how 
how many what age group you've mainly devoted yourself to whether it's adults children uh, young adults um tell us some of the uh what are some of the things that you bring to teaching catechumens or various others the faith of the real presence how do you present it what are some tips mm -hmm. and, uh, points that you make so anthony i i'm really happy to hear what you had to say uh, because for me in my work, you know, bringing uh, adults to the faith through my catechismclass.com program. So thankfully, you know, by the grace of God, we've helped really thousands of people enter the church or re rediscover the church or study for their confirmation that put it off for years or children studying for first communion, you know, thousands of those as well. And uh, we do talk a lot about miracles because I think the proof is is there. You know, you can you if you go to the source, like you know, we'll we'll also talk about reason. So reason and miracles. So we'll give you the formulas. You'll understand. You will walk you through. You know what the church is taught using the rationale of St. Thomas Aquinas and the saints. And you can, you can come to understand why this was practiced. We'll go back to the early church. We'll look at historical things in an age appropriate way. And, and that's all good. And I think that that's going to be in the back of your mind and you're not going to lose that, but you have to have the other thing, you know, it's not just an intellectual religion, you live it. So that's why, you know, the Eucharistic miracle of Orvieto, we talk about, and Luciano, and we have the, you know, children studying for their first communion. They watch a video on St. Anthony and the mule, you know, and, and understand that. We understand how St. Clair drove off the Saracen invaders by carrying the Holy Eucharist in a monstrance. So I want children to see these stories and get inspired by them. But then at the same time, we have them watch a, a documentary on modern Eucharistic miracles, you know, DNA testing, like you talked about. This is not just some, you know, story told over 800 years and we don't really know if it's true. Like, no, it's it's happening right now. So Eucharistic miracles, you talked about incorruptible saints, too. Which which um, documentary is that, uh, Matthew? Um, it, it's uh, on YouTube. I could find the link. I don't remember. There, all, there's all a great one called Science Test Faith that Ron. T I wish I could pronounce his last name. Um, Ron Tessario, I believe it is, but it's called Science Test Faith, where uh, they actually go around and they they test the the Buenos Aires miracle, which was yes, I, that's one of the one I'm talking about, the Buenos Aires one, where it's which is Pope modern. Francis's diocese when he was right. Archbishop Bergoglio, right? So he's in that diocese, and a Eucharistic miracle happens in his diocese. So if you guys get a chance, there are clips of it on YouTube, 100. Mm -hmm. You can go see it, and they're just talks, but he presents the evidence. Then there's also um, uh, there's another documentary where in the late 90s. Um, they go and they actually show a woman having uh, getting the stigmata on camera. I, I, I wish I knew the name of it offhand, but mm. I think that you might be able to find that, too, if you search science tests. We'll, we'll get all the links but, and put them in the show. I, the, the, yeah. one that, the only so one many I, miracles, though, you know, yeah. like even rosary miracles. You haven't even mentioned that, but rosary miracles at Hiroshima and like the list goes on and on. So, I mean, there's no way Catholicism can be false if it has all of this proof. So that's what I want people to understand. Like yeah. you might want it to be false. You might not want to live by the Christian morality that we have to live by. You might want to try to disprove it, but the evidence is so overwhelming that you must, you must actually say, I would rather believe a lie or I must go ahead and believe this. And if I do, then I'm really going to delve into the catechism. I'm going to understand what the church teaches, but it, it is hand in hand. It's not emotional. You know, it's not a charismatic renewal. We want you to feel a way, you know, God shows you an actual physical proof because he's real and he yeah. can do so.
Here's the this is the book I've read to my kids. It's now in its second edition, uh, Eucharistic Miracles for Kids. Um, it's so it's just stories. The downside it has no pictures. Kids like pictures, obviously, mm. but it is it are they are uh, like kind of dramatized stories of the the actual miracles, which I think is it's it's a pretty good book. Um, Aaron, what are some things that you've used to catechize your children or anybody you've catechized in this? uh dogma sure uh you already hit on the narrative i think that's that's huge just this i mean if anything for kids especially if it's a narrative form i mean everyone loves stories right that's just a characteristic of human nature we, we love being told stories we love telling stories uh being part of stories i think with the eucharist in particular that's that's tremendous you know in the in the context of christ's love for us is usually uh, kind of how I relate things. I remember being on on mission, third world. This has been years ago, but uh, we had a big uh, class of of uh, pre first communicants, you know, and and we we're trying to go like through a, a semi translator. You know, it was kind of the broken English situation, and and I, I remember they when they got it, and they they just the eyes got big, and they all looked at the tabernacle, you know, because we were in the back of the of the church, the local church, and they all like, looked at the tabernacle. And there's just this hush, you know, fell over everyone. And, it, and you, you can see that often with, with kids where it just, it suddenly resonates. Like there's, there's a person here who loves me profoundly uh, and has loved me from eternity. There, and there are so many catechisms that take that same approach really with, uh, with kids. It's you, you have to have the formula. You know, we, we have to, like you mentioned, the, the dogma itself, you, you have to have you know, transubstantiation, wh whether or not you're using the term, you know, with your, with your six-year-old, <laughs> uh, you have to have the content there. Uh, but on the same token, you know, if it's, if it's just rote memorization of a formula that, yeah, you're missing something. You, you really have to connect that. Uh, I think the miracles is a fantastic way of doing that. And that's, and that's been tried and true, right? I mean, you've got already in the middle ages, uh, catechists are, are holding this up like here, here's the whole rational demonstration and oh by the way just go you know to the diocese uh, uh, next door and um, you know they'll have they've got the stained corporals there from where father so-and-so you know just had you know, the miraculous uh, presence of, of the precious blood that endured fire or uh, you know or, or was stolen and then and then levitated out of the person's house and you know went back <laughs> to the church you know things like this um, what, what's fascinating to me is that the, uh, you know, the, the rebuttals haven't changed. Like, you know, Matthew, you know, you mentioned, well, look, if, if this is, if this is all, all, we have all this, this body of, of evidence, you know, and it's, uh, and it's even empirical evidence. I mean, we don't, we don't look for empirical demonstrations of our faith and yet we have them, you know, we have this massive mm -hmm. body of evidence. And I just couldn't help chuckle and thinking like, well, yeah, but you know, the arguments haven't changed. I mean, so now, now what's more common is like, well, our instruments are better. Right. <laughs> so, so now, now, you know, that's, that's definitely fake that this, that, or the other thing is definitely fake because there are fake ones, you know, and, mm -hmm. and we know, of course there, there have been, there's, there's false, uh, false apparitions, false demonstrations, false miraculous, you know, phenomena, et cetera. So that's always a, that's always a downer. Uh, but then, you know, most of the rationalists were really excited already starting in the 1800s when some of these sciences started to come into their own in the in the instrumentation advanced. Like, OK, well, now we're really going to we're really going to tie this up and, and show how, 
yeah, this is totally bogus. And yet now we've got the DNA testing. We've got chromosomal mysteries. Like, how does this only have, you know, this, this has no evidence of a male paternity at the DNA level. We can't make sense out of that, you know. So, but, but the arguments haven't gone away, right? <clears throat> you, right. you still have these rebuttals that uh, they, they just, they really amount to, well, I, I will not, like, you can't submit that evidence is basically what the rebuttals amount to. So, but I think to your point, Timothy, that for kids is, is huge. Like the narrative portion and, and you're pulling on uh, miracles old and new. I think that's a big piece of it. Uh, but more, more than anything, I, I find, I think a lot of, and of course, some of you gents can speak to this too. It's just the witness of your own uh, reverence before our Lord, you know, in the tabernacle is that, that speaks more than anything you'll ever say to a kid. Right. And one and one thing to add too, we have Eucharistic miracles to thank for Corpus Christi becoming a feast in the Universal Church, because Pope Urban the Fourth only extended it after he personally went and saw the miracle in Orvieto, and and thus that's why Corpus Christi entered into you know it wasn't an octave at that time, but we have <clears throat> miracles to thank for that. That's why we're celebrating Corpus Christi. I wish that that criteria would come back more, you know, in, in uh, ecclesiastical decision-making, like, because you, you see that all the time in history where you know, the bishop uh, would just say, well, I'm going to fast about this for three days and just ask our Lord to confirm this by miracle. And then if he does, you know, we'll, mm-hmm. we'll go ahead with whatever, you know, parish program or something. <laughs> that would be awesome. Uh, haven't you heard we have better instruments now aaron it's about the committee and the synodal process bro yeah yeah uh anthony i think uh i think you and i are the only ones here who have adolescent or adult children um can you speak at all to catechizing or maybe not catechizing but uh sort of maintaining that faith for children who are reaching adolescence and older in our Eucharistic Lord. Yeah, I'm glad you said that because it's it's great to show a young kid miracles, but you need the intellectual backing as they get older. And really showing my children typology is the most important thing I think I've done with them. So showing them how the Exodus story is a prefigurement of Jesus's Exodus and really showing them how when Moses sacrifices the lamb, that Jesus is the lamb of God. And really showing them how the if the family doesn't eat the lamb, then the angel of death will take their firstborn son. So I, as your children get older and they start hitting their teens and they're able to grasp deeper concepts, I think parents really need to start challenging your kids to take these deeper concepts. You can't just take your children to mass and hope they're picking things up. You need to have deep conversations with your kids. And especially once they hit that 13, 14 year old area. Now my kids, um, so my son made his confirmation through the diocesan catechism program, but there were a couple of things that he was learning that really upset me. So I went to the parish and I asked them if they would let me catechize my children at home and they agreed to let me do it at home. So there's amazing programs on formed. So the, the, the formed app, where they they have a whole series about the Eucharist on formed. So I did that as part of my catechizing the children. But then I really took them through a deep dive into scripture and read to them the Exodus narrative and then showed them how that is all a prefigurement of Jesus going on his Exodus and taking us not to the promised land in Jerusalem, but to the promised land in heaven. That's fantastic, Anthony. Um, That's great. 
um, I love that you, when you talked about the intellectual formation of the older children, you went to the scripture as a, the narrative and the typology, which I think is really the normal, that's the normal intellectual formation that we should be going to um, in particular. Uh, for, for my adult daughter, um, I think a big factor was just having a parish where Eucharist ador Eucharistic adoration was the norm. We had every Tuesday uh, at school, they had they enthroned the Eucharist in the monstrance and they had Eucharistic adoration all day long, every single Tuesday. So every class she, she has, a, we have a, one of those unicorn parish schools. That's awesome. Yeah. Um, and so every class during the day would go to Eucharistic adoration every Tuesday. So every Tuesday you'd have an hour, every, every student would have an hour. So she would grow up. She grew up in the school every Tuesday. She'd have an hour of Eucharistic adoration. And then the first Friday, we always had a 24 hour Eucharistic adoration. And so mm -hmm. just just having that culture, I find that the, that positive peer pressure of the culture of the parish, it's just this and, and also the school, the school and the parish working together uh, really, I think, helped form her uh, to this point. Um, Aaron, I want to let's let's talk now about uh, the history of this dogma. I mean, this seems to be uh, I remember reading in in um, Michael Davies this quote that he pulls from Luther and Luther says, if we just take out the mass, we can destroy all of papism, something like that. And it, it's what's interesting is that I, I think Luther's trying to get at in particular, like the mass as a sacrifice because of his whole sola fide heresy. And then he makes up some kind of weird consubstantial real presence. And then the Protestants start fighting each other about doctrines or, or lack thereof of the real presence. Um, so what is the centrality of this dogma in the catechetical tradition uh, post-Trent, Aaron? Boy, uh, well, so post-Trent, it is, it's one of the defining marks. I mean, it's, it's really, it's one of the reasons that the genre of the catechism gets legs. I mean, really that it, that it takes off is that you have in the wake of uh, the, the Protestant revolt, which is now kind of metastasizing, you know, into all of these formerly Catholic nations, you know, Western Europe, especially, um, you have this need for equipping, uh, especially lay folk with, a, a kind of regular battery of, of answers to really specific objections, you know, so, so Trent it, itself as a council does all the heavy lifting, you know, the decree on justification is regarded as this, this miracle, you know, in, in, in process, even during the sessions, uh, it's incredible. And if and if any Catholic watching this has not gone and read the decree on justification from Trent, it, it's it sounds like a mouthful. It is very readable, and the and the can and it's short, <laughs> and the canons, the the very super precise, super concise anathemas uh, are just worth their weight in gold. They are so important. So, um, so that was huge, you know, for in the wake of the uh, Protestant heresies um but but right there with it was as you say the eucharistic dogma so the the nature of the mass as a sacrifice is kind of the main attack point uh for really really all of the protestants um is its nature as a propitiatory sacrifice so there are some that'll still argue for like you mentioned luther a kind of consubstantial thing where maybe christ really is present they'll even use the term real presence right um, and some still do. You know, there are, there are several Protestant confessions that will use that phrase. You know, yes, Christ is really present uh, in in communion, 
or during communion, or you know, they have these different kind of ways of, of framing it. Uh, but they'll use that phrase, which kind of throws some some folks for a loop. Um, but that's the, the biggest point for every denomination was that the mass is doing something <laughs> that, that wasn't the case before. And that doing of something, that kind of work that the priest goes up there, you have this man who is special for some reason, and he goes up and he, he does some sacred thing, you know, that nobody else can do. And that was really abhorrent, you know, so... So every catechism post-Trent is, that's a major feature in them. And one of the things that we didn't really bring up in the last kind of uh, question series, but was the apologetics angle, you know, especially for old, older kids getting into their teens, you know, now they're really grappling with opposition. You know, they're, they're getting pushback in the culture or from, you know, the friends who aren't Catholic or the friends who are Catholic and have doubts. Uh, and, and that's where really where the apologetics angle comes in. Well, that was a defining feature of, of most catechisms uh, after Trent was that you had a really long kind of sequence of, you know, well, I have heard X. Is that true? You know, about the Eucharist. No, because X, Y, Z. I mean, some will even use, like I pulled the uh, volume five. We've got Don Levy and Burke. These are some of the best Irish catechisms, a couple centuries after Trent, uh, century and a half. And you've got specific call-outs. You know, for them, it was modern errors. You know, so they would present the truth, and then they would just have, what, what's the contemporary error about this? Just to give a very clear, you know, point on the doctrine. Uh, so, so Don Levy, he's one of these, uh, he's a good Irish Dominican. Uh, so he's talking in the section on, on the Eucharist, and then specifically on transubstantiation, that, that uh, $50 word. He has a question, in what does the Catholic doctrine differ from the Lutheran doctrine of consubstantiate, you know, so you have a very focused question. Well, how is this different from what they say? Because I just heard, you know, from my neighbor that they believe the same thing. Is that true? Right. And then he goes on. No, in this Luther and his followers maintain a real presence of the body and blood of Christ in the bread and wine. Well, that sounds a lot like, right. Or with the substance of the bread and wine or simply in, whereas you know, so here's, you know, the, the several variations of the, of the Lutheran doctrine and then followed by whereas the Catholic Church believes the bread and wine are changed into the body and blood of Christ so that there remains nothing of the inward substance of bread and wine after the consecration. Only their outward appearances are accidents. Right. So and then it goes through, you know, every follow up question imaginable <laughs> on, on clarifying the point. But that is something that is also that that kind of approach, that apologetic approach. Sadly, that's that's also missing, uh, and it has really been uh, pretty dramatically missing in the last fifty years. Really, almost the opposite has occurred. You've got catechisms that will bring up every erroneous take on the doctrine of the Eucharist, and then just state them all in one, like in one paragraph, without distinctions. Just say, well, yes, some some say this, others say this, or it's it's kind of like this, but not quite like this. I mean, that that's like the hallmark of modernism, right? No distinctions, but all of the terms. <laughs> yeah, I've got the Dutch catechism queued up for a little bit later. Uh, Matthew, um, any comments on this um, transubstantiation, explaining that, the importance of that versus consubstantiation? Like somebody might ask, why is that so important, the distinction that, that Aaron just raised here between a transubstantiation and a consubstantiation? 
Well, I mean, we talk about that in, you know, our, our classes at catechismclasses.com because, I mean, we have people converting from Lutheranism, from Anglicanism, for instance, and, and, you know, they're coming from similar backgrounds. So it's important that they and children know that it is, as, as Aaron mentioned, a propitiatory sacrifice. It is the sacrifice of our Lord Jesus Christ. He is the priest and he is the victim. He is not offering bread and wine. He is offering himself to his heavenly father, you know, in, in, um, you know, for, for us and for our salvation. And the unfortunate thing is there are so many modern heirs, um, and, and it really goes to the neo-modernism, you know, infecting the church. And unfortunately, we don't have great catechisms, you know, for the most part coming out nowadays, like we did, as Aaron mentioned, after Trent, that are really understanding here's an heir, but here's what we believe, you know, this is an heir, this is what we believe. Because the heirs we're seeing now, I'm sure we'll talk about, you know, heirs regarding communion in the hand or people insisting on receiving under both species. And that has entered in a whole nother thing where there are so many people who you might hear now to say like, oh, or did you receive the wine at mass? You know, did you did you go up for wine? I, I, there is no wine there. I mean, maybe in Kansas City, you know, there'd be wine. But for, for the most part, there, there shouldn't be any wine. There is no wine left, you know. And, and if, but if you go to the Baltimore Catechism, and I and I and I quote this in lessons because I lead people, you know, to the truth. Question 900 says, quote, the church does not give Holy Communion to the people as it does to the priest under the appearance of wine also to avoid the danger of spilling the precious blood to prevent the irreverence some might show if compelled to drink out of a chalice used by all. And lastly, to refute those who deny that our Lord's body is present under the appearance of bread also, end quote. And that's very important. A lot of people don't talk about that, you know, but when you're going to what is the Holy Eucharist, it's important to understand that just one small, tiny fragment of that host is the fullness of the Christ, our God, who dwells in heaven. His body, his blood, his soul and divinity It's not just his body. It is all of that entire, and you can look in the Council of Trent, the 13th session, Canon 4, which affirms that those particles, no matter how small, are fully Christ. So when our liturgical life and our reverence is underscoring what we believe, you know, the law of prayers, the law of faith, going back to that, that really emphasizes what we teach in, in the catechism. The problem that I find is that I can go on and, and teach, you know, here's how transubstantiation differs from consubstantiation and, and, and go through this. But the problem is when these people go back to their local parish, some people have come to me and like, I don't know, this must be a different religion because the way you <clears throat> described it and you showed it is not what I thought. I thought these people, you know, like St. Gemma talked about, like to Holy Communion, why do you not walking on your knees? You know, we have, I have people who are Muslims who are converting who say, like, you know, like, God is so sacred. I'm supposed to pray all these times a day, I was told. Um, you know, I have Jews talk about that as, as well, the sacredness of God. And these people claim to receive God, to eat him, and just walking up there like nothing, you know, like it's common. Like they're just going to, to the grocery store. So, I mean, so much to be said about properly catechizing is in the formulas it is in using proper catechisms but it's also in going to a real parish in your area or however far away you need to go to take your family that underscores that reverence and that i would always say is at the traditional latin mass so if it's an hour two hours away make the drive because it's going to be worth it because that is going to be the most effective catechesis paired with the doctrinal formation of the older catechisms tim do you, did you ever hear nick cavazos uh, conversion story? No. 
So Nick Cavazos came on our channel uh, about a week or two ago, and he told us as he was converting exactly what Matthew was just saying. He was so scandalized by the 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 people receiving irreverently that he almost could not come into the church because of it. And it wasn't until he found uh, a, a traditional Latin mass that he was able to finally connect that, okay, the faith I was learning is the faith being practiced. And his first mass was a requiem mass that he, the first Latin mass he went to was a requiem mass and it was like the candles all over and he's, it really blew his mind. But it, it just goes to show what Matthew was saying is 100% true that our actions prove what we believe yeah there's this there's a certain reality sort of like an incarnated reality that becomes present when you see people acting and acting that out it's it's making present the abstract thing that you said was we're told were true and you see people actually doing that uh i remember just as when i was a protestant just encountering catholics who were really serious and pious mm -hmm. just the humility that I'd never seen before in my life. Not that there aren't Protestants who have some humility there, but just it's just another level. And when you encounter the saints, you encounter something that's just in another uh, ball game. Um, Rob, can you tell us at all about um, anything anything that you experienced, uh, bad catechesis or horror stories thereof, like uh, any of the dismantling that you experienced and how, how did you uh grow in the, in the faith of the real presence so <clears throat> growing up actually uh for for most of my childhood and, and young teenage years it was actually all very good um as a matter of fact um, kind of speaking to what what matthew just said about uh, actions having such a large impact um one of the things that that sticks me sticks with me even to this day is um is i, I was an altar server and our priest was a an old german priest who our parish had both um, at a, a Novus Ordo and uh, an indult TLM before uh, some more um, pontificorum. So he, he said both the TLM and the Novus Ordo, but I was on the Novus Ordo side. My whole family was. And as an altar server, um, you know, we would every once in a while see, um, see our, our Eucharistic Lord dropped. Of course, it was always by someone receiving in the hand. And we had patents, um, but it's hard to catch a host drop by someone holding it uh, as opposed to under the tongue. But every time um, our Lord was dropped, uh, our priest would, would stop everything. Um, it did, didn't matter how long that line was. He would get down on his hands and knees and he would, he would pick up and consume every little visible, visible particle that he could see. And, um, not many people probably saw, but as, as a server standing right there, you know, I could see that he had tears streaming down his cheek as he was doing this, as, as he was picking up the body of our Lord and consuming them. And you could just tell for the rest of that mass. And even for the rest of that day, like it, it, it threw him off. It, it physically and emotionally pained him for a whole day. And I, I mean, growing up that, that's how I knew that the Eucharist was real. Um, just because this man that I, I, I loved and respected so much um, gave such a, a good example of it. Um, and then growing, you know, growing up and, and going through confirmation, um, I kind of had almost the exact opposite 
experience where uh, our you our confirmation course um, we had to go to uh, a retreat and this was a, a retreat put on by by Steubenville um, they would travel across the country doing different conferences and retreats for teenagers we had one at the University of St. Thomas and St. Paul and it was done very much in the style of like um, like life teen so you know you have we're all thousand kids stuck in a unair conditioned gym in the middle of July. Um, not, you know, of course not drinking enough water. Um, and you know, just the, the most ridiculous stuff happening at mass beach balls being swatted around during music at mass. And, and it was just one of those things where growing up the way I did. And, um, you know, we had a, a perpetual adoration chapel in our church and, and all these things that were so great and, and instilled such a love of the Eucharist for me. And then seeing how just unseriously everyone at this retreat, you know, took the mass, took the Eucharist, took our entire faith. I I mean, it, it just about destroyed me. I was 17 and it just, I don't know. It, it's hard to explain it. If they could all just be so lax about it, well, then so could I. And that's the way I, I lived my faith for the next 10 years after that. And what what brought you what brought you back to the Eucharistic Lord, Rob? It was um, it was really two things. It was a longing that I had over that those ten years to to relive the memories I had of of serving at Mass, of going to adoration in the middle of the night with my grandparents, um, and then it was um, our having our first child. And me wanting to give him that same upbringing that I had, so that's what brought me back. Beautiful. All right, well, this it's nothing like uh, becoming a father just changes everything. It's like something there's like a switch that goes off that you didn't realize was there, and then suddenly you're just a different man. Suddenly it's like uh, thanks be to God for that. I want to talk about communion in the hand because this is uh, one of the particular things that uh, Bishop Athanasius Schneider asks in his crusade of Eucharistic reparation for reparation for this thing. And I think this is a little complicated because the enemy, our enemies, the enemies of, of, of trads often criticize us because we insist on communion in the tongue. Uh, but contrary to popular belief, there's actually, um, when you look at the history very closely, um, you find that it's actually something that, for example, Paul VI was against communion in the hand. He called it an abuse. He was trying to promote and retain communion in the, on the tongue, but I think he was weak and he got pressured. But uh, this text, oh, no, I, oh, I didn't put it. Just so everyone knows, this text is the one that you need to buy and send to your bishop. This is, this is called Holy Communion by Bishop Juan Laise. And he is in... Um, I think it was Argentina, but he was basically pressured by his brother bishops to allow communion in the hand, which prevent, and this was like later on, like in the nineties, uh, it was one of the countries that really held out against this abuse. And so he did an investigation into the history of what happened here, which resulted in this book, which resulted in this conclusion that there's there, no bishop is under any obligation whatsoever, even from the Holy See in today's culture with the Vatican, 
uh, for allowing this abuse. Um, and I want to start by looking at some of the history here by reading from the Dutch catechism. We talked last time about why the Dutch catechism is so important for understanding this history, because all these bishops come back from Vatican II, and then they promulgate this heretical catechism. And one of the things in there is the uh, denial that the particles of Christ are Christ. And so this is from Lee Say's book here, uh, footnote 79. So this is quoting the, the Dutch catechism here. This is what it says. It says this, quote, Reasonably speaking, a piece of bread which has been reduced to dust is no longer called bread. Hence, little particles which have been left behind on the altar cloth are not in any sense the presence of Christ. End quote. Now, it seems to me that because there is a universal East and West and various Eastern customs of venerating the particles of Christ in this in the, the, the Blessed Sacrament, uh, whether that's leavened or unleavened bread, because there's there's that's custom in, in various Eastern rites. Um, it, it, this seems to be somewhere near a de fide non definita, something very strong in the faith. Um, the, the various fathers talk about if you were to leave, if you were to lose one particle, you should consider it as if you had been maimed. One of your limbs were cut off. That's how you should feel if you lose one particle of our Lord. And that's why there's a universal liturgical custom of always consuming every particle. And uh, what the enemies of Christ did in this history is that they they plucked certain patristic quotes here and there because these patristic quotes say things like, take it in your hand or things like that. Uh, and they, they tried to impose on us a Protestant version of that because the Protestants started doing communion in the hand, but the key difference was that they didn't reference the particles. Um, if you go to the Syriac rite, which is the only ancient rite still today, which uses the ancient custom of communion in the hand, and has all sorts of rituals tied with communion in the hand, washing your hand, incensing hand, wiping your, your licking your hand to receive all these different things because it's reverencing the particles. And that's the total difference between the night and day difference between what is done today in, in, in our churches is a profanation. It's really a heretical version of communion because it's imitating the heretical Protestants. That's how they receive their communion because they don't believe in, the, in if they're like Lutheran, they might believe in some real presence, but they don't believe in, in the particles. They don't believe that this this subsists in the bread. Uh, any comments, gentlemen? Uh, Matthew, please, you had some things, I think. Yeah, I, uh, I wrote a, a, an article some years ago on uh, restoring Eucharistic reverence back in 2007, and it still thankfully get, get, gets a lot of views, but I actually reference uh, Bishop Juan in there. And uh, I'm glad you mentioned him. Like, here's a quote. He's in the book. He said, it would be to deceive the faithful, to make them think that receiving communion in the hand would identify them more with the spirit of the primitive church. It's kind of his conclusion. You know, this is right. a, the faithful are being deceived by this. And and it's not just, you know, and there's plenty we can look at before Vatican II, for instance, the Summa, Part Three, uh, St. Thomas Aquinas, out of reverence towards the sacrament, nothing touches it but what is consecrated. So, you know, referring to the priest's hands or, or you know, the hands of the deacon as well. But if we look even at the example of, you know, John Paul II and what he did at Masses in the Vatican, or we look at uh, Father John Hardin, 
who you know allegedly said on in 1997 whatever you can do to stop communion in the hand will be blessed by god or you know mother teresa who allegedly said it is um the custom in our society in my known wish that the sisters receive holy communion on the tongue which to my knowledge uh they all do and she goes on to say that one of the things that makes her the saddest in the whole world was receiving holy, watching people receive Holy Communion in the hands. So this is not just uh, an instance of, well, we got these older catechisms here and we want to go back beforehand and this is the way it was. Um, this this is also the case of pious people now, people familiar with that uh, the life and they're living it out like we talked about who say, it just has to be this way. You know, there, there cannot be the reverence in our day and age and in our crisis and with our heirs to receive Holy Communion in the hand. Um, you know, you can go back and, and look at a lot of what the council said to, for instance, Trent, you know, session 13, chapter eight as well, to priest alone have been given power to consecrate and administer Holy Communion, administer as in touching, giving to the faithful, not you take it yourself and administer yourself. That the unvarying practice of the church has also been that the faithful receive the sacrament from the hand of the priest. So there, there's just so much there. I think the evidence is really overwhelming. And I'm glad somebody like, like that bishop from Argentina did produce that. It's a shame more people don't know about it because he went through that and ultimately concluded, looking at evidence, that it was done to deceive the faithful, to make them think they were going back to a more primitive, uh, primitive church. Yeah, it's it's really interesting. I mean, to, to me, it's it's like this is I mean, it's it, it's the case is so rock solid because the trads, we can just quote Paul the six about this. We can quote the Holy Office in in 1972 when this dubium was created. Here's here's the here's Laise's book again. Here it is. OK, so this is oh, this is OK. There we go. OK, so this is. When this the Dutch catechism created this heresy, which was already an abuse that had already been gone on because they were imitating the Protestants to start this Protestantized communion in the hand, is that the Holy Office made an official answer confirming all these things, Matthew, that you just quoted, confirming the Council of Trent, confirming all these things. And it said this in May 2nd, 1972, quote, after Holy Communion, not only the hosts that remain and the particles of the host that have fallen from them and that preserve the exterior prints of bread should be preserved or consumed respectfully on account of the respect of the Eucharistic presence, but also regarding the other fragments of host. One should observe what is prescribed concerning the norms of purification. And we have not only communion in the hand, but we have uh, so-called extraordinary Eucharistic ministers who are not, there's no purification do it being done for them they're touching the hosts and there we also published a study at one peter five where a, a there was actually a scientific study done where they took a bunch of unconsecrated hosts and they studied to see how many times particles were lost and the answer was 10 to 20 percent of the time so in, in any given parish you have 100 communicates 200 communicates you've you're getting dozens and dozens of people who are just scattering particles of our Eucharistic Lord on the floor. And then our Lord is being literally trampled. This is a, this is a grave offense against almighty God. I, I, I would say not everyone goes to the traditional mass, right? And they tend to try to make it like we're trying to make a scene and think we're holier than thou if we kneel and receive on the tongue, if we're at a Novus Ordo. So Rob and I have talked about this on our show. Like it takes a lot of courage if you're at a Novus Ordo 
to kneel and receive on the tongue. You're not, you know, this is not something where you're looking at, want everybody to see you, but I would encourage anyone who does go to a Novus Ordo or is stuck going to one because you don't have access to a traditional mass. I know it's embarrassing. I know it's hard to do. I know you don't want to be the center of attention. Go the extra mile and kneel and receive on the tongue. And if you get denied communion, because I've been denied communion a few times, it is what it is. But your example may inspire someone else to treat our Lord with that same reverence. Because the first time I saw it done, it was a gentleman who was seven feet tall. And when he knelt down, he was as tall as I was standing up. It was, but it, it, it struck my heart and made me start doing it before I was attending the traditional mass. So your example can be an example for others. So I know it's hard to be the center of attention, but I would urge anyone that is going to a Novus Ordo to do it. Thank you, Anthony. It's a great exhortation for us to testify to the faith of the real presence. Um, Rob or Aaron, any final comments as we wrap up this conversation? Um, I would just say, you know, uh, we talked about what, what you can do to help maybe like a teenager uh, come to understand the real presence or, or some things you can do with kids. Um, for me, one thing that I've found that has helped my four-year-old a lot, actually, is giving him a job, right? He loves to be given a job, a duty. Um, and uh, one thing that, that my wife and I always do is do the sign of the cross as we go by uh, any Catholic parish. You know, and, and he, he, of course, saw this and asked why we do that. And, you know, we, we told him it's because we're giving respect to our Lord who is in the tabernacle of that church. And we made that his job. And now every time he sees a church, first he asks us if it's Catholic. And if it is, then he 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 does the sign of the cross and he makes sure his little two-year-old brother does it too. And, um, you know, uh, we, we've asked him, well, why are you doing that? And he goes, and he, he's, he's learned it now. He goes, because I'm showing respect to Jesus who's in the tabernacle in there. And, you know, even if it's kind of, by 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 route you know by route um, learning this and doing this, he's telling the, himself that every time he goes by a church, it makes that sign of the cross, and you know that's something that's going to just be engraved on his mind and on his heart as he continues to grow. So and teaching his sibling, and teaching his yeah his little brother and now little sister too. Mm -hmm. That's great, beautiful. That's called the firstborn son. Taking care of business. Uh, Aaron, Aaron, you are the Tradivox dude. Final comments from catechetical, your, your catechetical, you've got a, a catechetical man cave that you're speaking from, clearly. So tell us what's your final word on this. Holy cow. It's, uh, well, the worship with the body. I mean, it, you know, we've, we've, we've talked all about our Lord's body uh, in this episode. And I think that's, that's a critical piece of it for our worship is that we render that worship to our Lord's body with our bodies. Right? So the making of the sign of the cross, we cross by, you know, this is, this is a gesture of the body, you know, kneeling to receive our Lord in the Holy communion. This is a gesture of the body. You know, we're, we're body and soul and uh, rever reverencing our Lord body and soul is, is critical. And I, I've, I've got to think, you know, when that poll came out like a year ago or two years ago, two thirds of, of self-describing Catholics in these United States, you know, don't hold the, the Catholic dogma on the, the real presence, something like that. I just, I remember seeing some stat about that and thinking, 
Well, how much of this is, is owed to the fact that the body hasn't been involved in, in right worship, you know, from their earliest memory. Like if you see with the body, this is how I'm, you know, I just I take this like a Dorito chip, you know, in, in the palm of the hand or, or you know, Susie, whoever is up there dishing them out to whoever come that, you know, these kind of things, they're, they're expressions bodily outward of reverence or, or irreverence. And if, you know, it's it's no uh, secret that the communion in the hand, this kind of practice, it originates with the Calvinists specifically for denying the presence of Christ in the Eucharist. Mm-hmm. I mean, that was the design of the practice. So here you have a, a bodily movement that's designed to damage and destroy faith in the true presence. Well, what do you think it will, will come from that? Mm-hmm. So that's that's critical to my mind and i think just i mean the, the catechetical frame as a whole is one of educating you know minds bodies hearts souls you know our, our affectivity how how do we respond to christ in the blessed sacrament uh and so much of that is is by way of just our our reverence you know any any time of the day, uh, any proximity to the church, proximity to our Lord in the Eucharist, uh, every every way that we regard Him bodily, that's that's speaking volumes. That's it. Uh, it's, I, I remember growing up seeing seeing my father on his knees praying. That was like the biggest catechetical experience for my whole life, and I I just trying to trying to uh, worship our Eucharistic Lord. Uh, with my children, bringing my children, and then I will worship the Lord. I will adore Him. We'll go to adoration, and they'll just see what I do. And that that catechizing of just seeing what your parents do, especially the father. Um, so, viewers, listeners, if you are zealous for the glory of our Eucharistic Lord, join the Crusade of Eucharistic Reparation. This is a lay fidelity. Our partners are Benedictus Books, that's Aaron saying, as well as Mass of the Ages. And the intentions of this crusade are, number one, to make reparation to God for the sins committed against the Blessed Sacrament. And number two, to restore the Latin Mass for the glory of our Eucharistic Lord. And the requirement, the base requirements are very minimal. One hour of adoration per month in reparation for the sins committed against the Blessed Sacrament. And then you play, pray once a month the prayer of Eucharist reparation written by Athanasius Snyder. And, but there's all these additional devotions that we, we want to spread, especially the, the, this Crusader cross. I'm, so this, this cross right here, you can get this cross, and you can get this sacramentalized using an adapted rite of the original Crusaders when they were invested with the Crusader cross. This is from the a pontificale from the 1500s. It was adapted and approved by Bishop Snyder. Any priest can sacramentalize this cross for you and you can be invested with the cross and you can buy, buy it at the links in this article. This is onepeter5.com slash crusade. And the, the, the goal outwardly is to establish Eucharistic reparation in our families and in our parishes a weekly, monthly, annual reparation mass, devotions in the parish and diocese. And uh, Bishop Schneider, he wants to create a day of reparation for crimes against the Most Holy Eucharist in each diocese as the octave day of Corpus Christi. That would be this coming Thursday is the octave day. So the day before the Sacred Heart of Jesus 
is this day of reparation. And there's also the uh, it, side note, there's also this feast of the Eucharistic heart of Jesus. That's a, one of those feasts in uh, one of those masses of other for other occasions that sometimes you can find in missiles. Um, but uh, a great thing to share is, is Kwasniewski's book, Holy Bread of Eternal Life, Restoring Eucharistic Reverence in an Age of Impiety. Uh, Bishop Laise's text we just mentioned. Bishop Schneider, also his first book is uh, Dominus Est, about all about the Blessed Sacrament. So these are all things that we want to inspire Catholics to do in our lay sodality. So you can join this crusade. You can put in your information and join the crusade. Uh, join our mailing list. Uh, ideally, we want to have a presence at the Eucharistic Congress in Indianapolis uh, next year in 2024. Uh, and we want to spread this devotion. And we we all want Eucharistic revival with the bishops want this too. But we we think that, that we need to have a little bit more sackcloth and ashes because our Eucharistic Lord has been uh, gravely offended uh, and has been has entered into a new passion in our era. So with all that, let's let's offer up a, a Hail Mary to Our Lady um, under her Russian icon. Just just a reminder, this this icon is available. The one to my right here, this icon that uh, I put up on the screen, this is available. You can also buy this, this icon um, below that also helps the Russian Catholics build their shrine to Our Lady of Fatima in St. Petersburg, Russia. So, um, Aaron, can you finish the, probably the second half of the Hail Mary for me? Yes, can now. I'm muted. Oh, okay, there we go. There we go. Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women. Blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Our Lady of Fatima. Pray for us. Pray for Blessed us. Emperor Carl. Pray for us. Saint Maximilian Kolbe. Pray for us. My God, I believe, I adore, I trust, and I love you. I ask pardon for those who do not believe, do not adore, do not trust, do not love you. In the name of the Father, Son. Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Jesus.